Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus. In the Pew Bible in front of you, it would be uh, page 103. We'll be in chapters, chapter 25 today. The whole chapter, we'll just read the first 12 verses to begin. Um, next week, I'll be out of town. Uh, you're used to hearing this if you're around here every year, but uh, this will be that week when I'm away uh, with my son on a backpacking trip with old friends from high school. And these are, these are friends that greeted me for the first time when I walked into youth group in 1997 at this church. And we've stayed good friends and walked with one another in the Lord uh, from far away and from near and worked hard to get together when we've been in town. And several of them, and some of you have this gift, uh, work hard to get people in the same room over many years. I'm grateful for my friends that have kept in touch with me and kept us all in touch with each other, and now we're bringing our sons, and Carson will be with me, and I will be back with time to preach on the 7th. Next week, um, Jason Reed will preach. It'll be a Lord's Supper Sunday, and we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4, but that's for next week. Restoration projects. Some of you are into these. Uh, maybe it's the restoration of a vehicle. And as I look at the thing in your driveway, I have no idea what you see. But you see it, and you can show me a picture of what it used to look like and what you intend to make it look like, and you will prove that you can. Maybe for another, it's a restoration of a home. You're always happy to buy a home that needs work because you know how to work on a house. And, and you can imagine all kinds of things when you walk in a home. Friends of mine have jumped houses up and up and up over the years, and and they'll post a little something to Instagram, the before and after, and you can see nothing in the before. But they saw it all, and then in the after, there's this beautiful casita or a little room or, or a re renovated bathroom. Renovation projects. Uh, for me, it's typically just a file somewhere. I need to restore a project, restore a file. And I know what that looks like, and if I've lost it, I want it back. And these days, you can back it up to a driver of the cloud, and it'll even show you a little preview so you know what you lost, and you can say, yes, give that back to me right now. I need it. Well, what about us? What about our whole lives? What about the whole creation? What about our relationships? What about our hearts, our desires? It doesn't go well for all of us. Humanly speaking, it goes great for some of us. And with good parents or some good decisions and a bit of luck or providence, we've, we've made it and it's gone well. But it doesn't always go well. Sometimes our own fault, laziness, trouble, bad decisions, um, foolishness, and sometimes the sin of others breaking in on our lives and, and wreaking havoc. What about, what about us and what about our lives? Well, the one person that can do something about that, to make a restoration project out of us, would be well, our maker, the one who stands outside of space and time. And, and, and typically, when we feel like the messes that we are, we would know there's no hope in us or in humanity to fix this. Uh, but there's hope in God, and that's why we're here this morning. Well, if God were to offer us a picture or, or a preview of the end game of that restoration project, even an installment, what would that look like? And that question brings us to Leviticus chapter 25 today. I'm excited to read it with you. Let's read together. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and, and the sojourners who lives with you and your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. 
You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Well, we could read to the end of the chapter, and we will read together much of this chapter before we're done this morning. It's a difficult chapter. Um, you know, we get a little bit used to saying that this is difficult for its own reasons, illustrated in the fact that we don't really know what jubilee means. It's just a transliteration. In other words, that's kind of how it sounded when they said it, but we didn't translate the word into into the expression we use for the thing, because we don't know what it is. It may, it may have to do with this ram's horn that was blown. It may have to do, uh, just in terms of the word itself, with uh, the restoration of property and people to their, to their land and clans. We're not sure. In any case, we know what's going on on this year of Jubilee on the page. But that just illustrates that this chapter is a bit tricky. Uh, This famous verse here, uh, verse 10, and you shall consecrate the 50th year, proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. Uh, Maybe familiar to you. That's the the line that's on the liberty bell. So there are some familiar phrases and themes in this chapter. It's the chapter that is thick with um, instruction for how the poor are to be cared for in the context of Israel under the Old Covenant. And there are verses in this chapter that get drawn over in some artificial and unhelpful, even if properly motivated, ways. It's a tricky chapter. And there are layers that we've been working on as we've been working through Leviticus. We lay We lay a layer and then another layer and then a layer builds on it. So on our way into Leviticus, we're asking the question, how do we get into the tent, into a relationship with God? Moses can't get in, his prophet, but we've got a tent. God showed up. He's in the neighborhood. He's dwelling here. How can his dwelling be our tent of meeting together? And we know we need sacrifices, the burnt offering and the the grain offering and the sin and the guilt offerings, to deal with our sin, but then to represent our whole life offered to him, a pleasing aroma and for the forgiveness of sins. And and for those sacrifices, we need priests, and those priests have to be holy and consecrated and set apart for the job. And that day of atonement, which is a sin offering, but a really big sin offering, and includes two goats, one that goes all the way into God's presence, that is its blood as it's killed for us, and the other one goes all the way out into the wilderness taking our sin as far as the east is from the west. So we need the Day of Atonement. And then we need holiness if we're going to grow in the knowledge and intimacy of our relationship with God. And and, and holiness and the growth in the knowledge of God leads us to love our neighbors as ourselves and to live sexually intact and maritally faithful faithful lives, which yields flourishing in in the community. And all this dumps out into these feasts. We've had all of these feasts to celebrate life with God and fellowship with Him on different days and at different times. And we talked about how exciting that calendar would have been for Israel. A calendar from God to shape His people to know and to see and to celebrate their life with with Him. We're used to layers now, but even as we work through Leviticus, it's almost like we're working down the layers in in an archaeological dig. We're discovering a layer underneath the thing we've heard before in a sermon or read before in the Bible. And and that's what we're doing today too. We're going another layer down on this theme of restoration. You'll hear language of freedom and and liberty in this chapter and, and themes that we've heard in the preaching that's more familiar and common from the New Testament have roots or layers that are represented in this chapter that sit underneath those ideas and 
and that good news. So we're going to do some excavating today like we, we typically do. Uh, we'll do this in three parts today. First, we'll explore the text itself. We're going to head down in the book and see what's here. Uh, we're not going to skip real quick to things that are useful for us. Anything I'm going to say about what's useful for us and encouraging for us is going to have authority insofar as it flows from the page and our, our grasp of it. So I'm going to walk through this, and that's where we'll spend most of our time. So be prepared to settle in. It should be interesting, but just so you know, that first third will be a long first third. And then we'll listen for echoes in the rest of the Bible of this chapter to understand how the prophets and the New Testament writers understood what God was doing and would do in light of, in light of this chapter. And then we're going to look at some family pictures together and consider our response. So let's begin by exploring, exploring the passage. Two rhythms of restoration. Two rhythms of restoration. That's what we get in this chapter. Israel has a rhythm of seven days, a weekly rhythm, based on the Lord's rest on the seventh day of creation. He set the whole thing up. Days wouldn't just pile on top of each other into eternity, but there would be a rhythm and a cadence to life that reminded her that she belonged, that we belong to the Lord. Every seventh day we would rest. And rest isn't just about stopping work, but it's about refreshment. It's about entering into the enjoyment of our work and labors, as the Lord did on the seventh day. In Exodus 23, we get some insight into what the purpose of the Sabbath, weekly Sabbath was. Six days you'll do no work, but on the seventh day you'll rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest. So there's a practical measure there. And the son of your servant woman and the alien, that they may be refreshed. In Exodus 31, 17, we see that that's rooted in what God himself had done. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. The seventh day, it's a sign between me and his people, he says, that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The seventh day is where all of creation was leading. And as Israel followed this pattern of seven days and a day of rest, six days and then a day of rest. It was a way of the Lord reminding her and a way of the Lord's teaching the whole earth that she belongs to the Lord and that her God is good, a God that gives rest and refreshment, a God who restores, as we'll see. So they have that pattern of seven days. Well, we get two more patterns of seven here in this chapter. So first section here, starting in verse 1. Speak to the people of Israel, when you come into the land, so this is looking forward, they're in the wilderness now, when you get into the land that I'm giving to you, here's how it's going to go. And you'll see for reasons, various reasons, it's good he gave these instructions first. When you come into the land I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. It's a, it's a Sabbath for the land. Every, you'll work six years, and then on the seventh year, there will be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. The land's not going to do any work. You're going to take a break. The land will take, will take a break. Uh, some things you can't do. You can't work it for commercial purposes, but you are able to eat from it. That first paragraph is a little confusing. He just said, the land takes a break, but then it's going to provide food for you and your household and your servants and all of this. How does that work? Well, food's still going to grow out of the ground, and he's saying, whatever comes up, you can take. Um, so the land still provided, but it wasn't used for commercial purposes. Um, and then we have a second pattern of seven. starts in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years. That means seven, seven weeks. A week would be seven. So this is seven times seven. There it is, seven times seven, helping us out. So that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. And then on this 50th year is is when you blow a trumpet, they're going to hear two things. You're going to blow a trumpet throughout the whole land, and then a second thing, proclaim liberty. Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And they're going to see a few things and participate in it. At that time, 
verse 10, it shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall, two things, one, return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Return to his property and return to his clan. And the rest of the chapter is a working out of how exactly is this going to work and, and what might this be good for. And even as we read this, just from uh, our experience in life as adults, we start asking questions, how is this going to work? Um, for example, the negotiation of property and the sale and the purchase of property. If property is returned to its owner every 50th year, its original owner as assigned by God in the Old Covenant, then... Uh, is anyone buying and selling when there's just a few? Is it the buyer's market or it's a seller's market depending on where you are? Well, in this case, we have a, we have a paragraph that helps us here. Uh, 13, in the year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. Here we go. If you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. Uh, you shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell you according to the number of years of crops. So you're going to do all the math and figure it out but you're going to pay what the property is worth. You're going to get what the property is worth. So that takes, that takes care of that. Maybe hard to undo for other reasons, but not, it won't overly complicate this matter of, of the land's value. You won't pay more or less than you, than you should, in other words. Uh, what are you going to eat? So a whole year off from the land, and it produces some, and it's going to feed your family. But a whole year, my, uh, that's a long time. The Lord can ask us to take a break, uh, his people to take a break once, once a week um, and not work. Uh, there's, there's food around. Uh, a whole year is really something else. And this would take a good bit of faith. And the Lord was nurturing faith among his people and calling them to trust in him. And he has an answer for this. Verse 21, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year. It'll produce an unusual crop of several years in that year, and you'll be able to eat through the seventh year and even into the next, even into the next two as you get things going. So just like in the wilderness, the Lord uh, called his people to rest on the seventh day. It was so that they would trust him to provide, and he provided more food from heaven on the sixth day. So they're to trust him. That's what this is. That's what this is about. And then we might ask, well, why? Because I could have imagined the Bible uh, being a great Bible still without Leviticus chapter 25. But apparently the Lord didn't think it would be a great Bible, good enough, without Leviticus 25. So, so why is this here? Well, get this out of the way. Surely there's agricultural things going on here. You remember with the Sabbath passages we read from Exodus, um, it was good for the servants to take a rest. And there's something to that. Um, there's not nothing to that. Same with the land here. And we've learned to, to, to let land lay fallow, and we have different ways of helping make sure our land produces long-term. And we, I don't know, plant beans one year and corn the next and cows the next. You can't plant cows. You know what I'm talking about. I'm a city boy. Um, so we have ways of working the land, which do good on what, what this was intended in part, in part to do. That was good for Israel. They had some divine instructions for uh, the long-term health of their agricultural industry and product and, and then for food on the table. And then they had the miraculous work of the Lord providing in abundance for them in the year prior. So there's an agricultural purpose. It's good for the land. There's a theological purpose here as well that we can't escape. Notice um, verse 2 when you come into the land that I give you, this is very important. This is a matter of emphasis. The Lord gives the land. Verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. And so he gets to decide who goes where. And he told everyone where to go, or will tell everyone where to go. Um, you can listen or turn uh, to... Joshua chapter 17, excuse me, 13. And we have here in the book of Joshua, 
The people get in the land through obedience to God, who miraculously shuts down cities and hands them over, and the walls of Jericho fall down and all of that. And then the Lord distributes the land. Verse 8 of chapter 13, And Joshua, with the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, and the Reubenites and the Gadites, received their inheritance, which Moses gave them, beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them, from Oreor to which is the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland. Verse 15, And Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben, according to their clans. And then a list of the clans in a paragraph. And Moses, verse 24, gave an inheritance also to the tribe of Gad, and to the people according to their clans. And we've got pages and pages of, of the Lord giving land to clans. At the end we read, These are the inheritances that Eleazar, the priest of Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord. And where did all this happen? At the entrance of the tent of meeting, so they finished dividing the land. So that's going to happen. And the Lord will give to each of the twelve tribes and to the clans very specific places to live. And it is his purpose that they would stay there. But there's also a humanitarian purpose going on here. And that is, for various reasons, people don't always stay where they are. For various reasons, Israelites didn't always stay in the land. And it wasn't wrong for them to end up other places because of the natural way of things with work and the land. And you may have noticed, you wouldn't have noticed because I haven't read yet, but four times in this chapter you have a paragraph, verse 25, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property. So something's happened. Maybe through laziness and maybe through a bad decision, but a good decision from his perspective, but, but in the end it was, was bad, or maybe just weather got him, acts of God. We'll come back to that in a moment. But verse 35, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself, he's, he's out of property to sell. Verse 39, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, there's another reference in chapter, verse 47 there. So, so much of this chapter deals with how to get along together uh, and to help those are, who are impoverished. And the Lord's purpose and plan for his people, Israel, which teaches us something about him and his, and his ways. There's a humanitarian purpose. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on this, under this first header now. So in verse 25, excuse me, in verse, yeah, 25, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So working in a flow now from one side to the other, this would happen if and when a farmer um, bought seed, spread seed, and there wasn't a crop that year for one reason or another. And doesn't have money now to spend the money on food from other places and doesn't have money now to purchase seed than to prepare the land for the next year. In that case, the farmer, where is he going to get seed? Uh, he's going to sell part of his land to make some money to then buy seed to then hopefully have a good year. Now he's in a little, uh, he's in a, a, even a more disadvantageous position this year than the previous because he's got to pay back the seed that he just bought. Excuse me, he's already paid for the seed, but he's got to pay back the loan. Uh, two, he has less land to work with which to do that. Um, there may be other debts that were incurred in the course of that year, but you can see where this goes. Another bad year, and we're selling more land to purchase seed. And if we've got less land to work with year on year. And there were three things, three possibilities from here. Uh, the first, if you had a nearest of kin, a family member, uh, they had first dibs, and they could and ought to redeem you, buy the land from you. Uh, keep it in the family and in the clan, in other words. Uh, the second possibility, verse 26, if a man has no one to redeem it, 
but then he himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Now, that can happen. Bad years and there are good years. Those of you who are business owners know all about this. Um, if he had a couple great years, well, he could go back and redeem his land. Although he sold it, it's not indefinitely gone. It's kind of like a table I recently sold on Craigslist, and I've been thinking, I should have kept the table. Well, it's gone. Uh, my brother sold an amp. He played guitar in high school, and he became an adult, and he had kids, and, and he had this awesome Marshall amp, and, and, uh, and he sells it for 300 bucks. And as the, 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 the buyer is coming up to get the amp, he sees his son is five years old. And then my brother looks at his son, which is five years old, and thinks, he's the smart guy, I should be keeping this. And now I wish he kept it. It's gone. And I said, you should call the guy up and say, hey, maybe it didn't work out. Can I buy it back? But it would just be a fluke if that happened. Well, this is a different situation. This land gets to get bought back. It's a part of the plan. Because remember, the land is the Lord's, and the Lord has given land, not just generally to Israel, but to tribes and to clans. And he has a purpose for having them where he has them. And so this is a way to keep things clean, if you will. Now, this, the, 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 the last resort measure is if a family member can't buy it, and, and he can't buy it because he's not in a better position, uh, then at the 50th year, he'll recover it at the year of Jubilee. And this is a generational, once-in-a-lifetime thing. And maybe it would be a family member down from him that gets it, gets it back. But the year of Jubilee, which is what we're talking about now, is how that would get restored to him and that family. Now, this, this scenario of economic hardship that is compounded over time is how some would end up in what the Bible would term slavery. Though it's not a great term because it doesn't overlap immediately with our own country's history of slavery, and it's important to do a little bit of work on this for a few minutes. We have a hard time coming to this institution on the pages of the Bible for a few reasons, certainly our, our, own, our own nation's history. So it's, it's an association thing, an overlap of institutions. Maybe you've had a bad experience near water as a child and you almost drowned. And so you don't like to be on boats and you don't like to be near the edge of a water. So you're going you're to watch, walk in from shore and you'll take a pass on, on that boat trip. And and there's an overlap of things here. It's not unsafe to be on the boat, but you can drown in water, and there's nothing, nothing to that. But those are so tightly associated that, that you have an unusual way of looking at water. One other illustration may be, and I, I know these illustrations will just totally break down. Someone's going to hammer me over email. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, that's not, that's not uh, said with um, a curmudgeon-y attitude. Oh, oh, we need curmudgeons, but I mean that generously. You can email me. Illustrations break down. Um, spanking. So maybe you have had an experience of physical abuse that you've been in a marriage where that was going on or in a relationship to a parent and that is tragic and the Lord judges these things and he redeems all kinds of sinners and, and we need all the promises that this chapter is giving to us today. But for that reason, maybe, maybe the thought of corporal punishment or, or discipline by spanking a child is particularly unnerving to you. Maybe it's objectionable to you. Maybe, it, maybe it's not, but it, but it, but it moves you and it, and it spooks you at the least. There's an association there. So in our own history, we had great greed was running the world and slaves were being traded in every direction for many years and centuries. And slavery or an economic institution like this has looked different at different times and and places. And at the point of our own nation's founding, we'd found it quite convenient. We'd found the right price over from Africa. And so we had many hundreds of thousands of slaves here. And, and it began to be identified with color and race. And there was absolute obedience required. And there were no rights for slaves. And it wasn't as bad as possible in every home or situation. Nevertheless, that institution was deeply immoral. It involved the stealing of people, which the Bible forbids, and it involved the abuse of people. 
That is not exactly what we're dealing with on the page of Scripture. So sometimes you'll have slave translated uh, indentured servant or servant or bond servant. Um, You could translate it either way. Nevertheless, you need context and teachers to make clear what this actually actually was. Another reason why we have trouble here is just the vocabulary. Like I said, the word slave, the same word translated slave could be used of in different Bible texts. God's servant, the same word. Or a king's servant. Uh, Well, that would be an honored position. Um, Or an indentured servant, uh, a a hard worker. Or a permanent servant. This would be closer to a slave, although it doesn't overlap exactly in many ways with uh, our own nation's historic institution. But that's just to say the word itself gives us some trouble. We immediately read, hear the word, and then we're embarrassed thinking the Bible condones and endorses everything that we have rightly rejected as a country. Another word here is property. So later in this chapter, you'll see you can sell a slave and your children can inherit them and they're your property. I mean, wow. Um, How do we deal with that? Well, we use the language of commerce with people in the course of our everyday life in dealings in the market sphere, in, in the realm of economics. So human resources is kind of a funny way to talk about people, isn't it? Um, and there are maybe better ways to talk about people than resources. But a team, can, a team, a sports team can trade a player to another team. You have an owner of a team. And there are other examples of this. I think it's fine to just read it in that fashion. The, the institution had economic realities around, around it. Um, so slowing down and listening and being careful and trusting that the whole Bible fits together uh, is helpful. And hopefully that is helpful to you. The point is simply that there were economic realities in a fallen world that made it not unreasonable, even ideal, for some to be in a kind of permanent permanent servitude as better than the other options for them or society, namely jail for them uh, or uh, impoverishment on the street without property or land or having a society in which there are no such thing as loans because you could default on them with no consequences. No debt was incurred and debt was owed, and when you had no property, you may sell yourself. But that doesn't have to mean what it sounds like to us. So we've worked through the first bit here where someone sells a part of their property and they can get it back in one of three ways. Let's keep working down the line here. In verse 29, he continue, we continue with some details on what to do with different types of dwellings. So let's you say, say you sell a dwelling uh, on your property within a walled city. Well, apparently you're not allowed to get that one back. You've got one year and you can get it back. After that, it's gone and it doesn't even come back to you at the Jubilee. There are a couple of reasons for why this may be that I didn't really even understand. I won't rehearse them. But it's a difference between a home that's in a village without walls that's treated like property, like anything else. So that's that, that paragraph, verse 29. Then we have verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you. In other words, he doesn't have anything to sell to, to pay you. You shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. And he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. That your brother may live beside you. So this bit about loans and no interest, there's some interesting history here. Because Israelites were allowed to take interest on loans from foreigners. So in the history of the West, as it became Christianized, Constantine forward, at some point it became custom slash law and just the expectation of Christian nations, Christian places, places shaped by Christianity and often that identified as Christian in identity, understood this, I think wrongly, to mean that it would be wrong to offer a loan and take interest for it. And yet so much of the world runs on loans, what would the incentive be if you can't have interest. Well, they worked out a little sneaky trick. And that was like, ooh, well, the Jews, uh, Israelites, 
they can't lend, loan each other money at interest, but, but they can to foreigners. Well, most of us are Gentile foreigners, so we'll make them the bankers. So this became their industry. And it's a part of the story of the history of the Jewish people. And anti-Semitism uh, goes back to a misunderstanding on the part of Christians of this passage. And I wouldn't even call them Christians, but sneaky people who, who, uh, who, who, would, who would find ways to, to work loans and, and make the economy go by using Jewish people who could then loan money at interest to others. And you can see where that would engender bitterness and strife and jealousy and hostility between, between groups. Over time, uh, a distinction emerged that is, I think, just clearly here. And that is a distinction between benevolent loans and call it business. So in this case, what we're talking about is charity. This is someone who is destitute, no property. They don't have anything. We're talking about the truly poor. And what God is doing in Israel here is he's saying, don't make a buck off the truly poor. Don't make a living taking advantage of it, exploiting the poor. Uh, it was a way of softening their situation and giving them a bit of a chance back and protecting them from the harm of sinners who would take advantage of them. So that's what's going on here. That's different than a business loan. So you make a loan so that you take some risk and somebody can go build a house or build a business and you take interest from that and they make more money and they pay you back and, and everyone wins. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's partly why interest is mentioned here. In other circumstances, it is okay. In this circumstance, don't profit off your brother. This is family. And you can even think family. He's speaking to the Israelites as family. You can think of family. Now a parent may offer a loan to a kid with some interest and you know, you ought to be careful. Money can really mess relationships up. But, but you get it. Um, I, may, I may offer a loan to one of my kids and teach them something and have little interest attached to it. But that's different than trying to make a buck off my 14-year-old son when he comes into a hard time. You see? So that's what's happening here. Well, it can get worse for them. Verse 39, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, so what do you do then? They have nothing, can't pay a loan back, and they're destitute. You shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of jubilee. So notice this language, he sold himself. In a sense, the new owner owns them. The Lord owns everything. But in terms of economic relations, they're owned, but they're not a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of jubilee. There it is. And he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, the family, and go back to his clan, return to his possessions of his fathers. And why is, why is it this way? Well, for they are my servants. Well, these, this, the one who sold himself to you and his family, they belong to me. They're my servants whom I brought, brought out of the land of Egypt, just like you. They shall not be sold as slaves. You all were in slavery. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. Now, a note next here, they're able to, it says, purchase slaves from the foreign nations. Now, notice in each instance here where you've got to talk about this kind of servitude or selling himself, it is, it is as the result of a series of circumstances of one kind or another that have put a person in a place of destitution so that they sell themselves and are bought. Think, think of this not terribly unlike, although we have lots else propping us up these days, terribly unlike a company offering to pay for your degree so that you may work so many, many years. And that's good for you, and it's, it's good for them. In this case, this person is utterly destitute, but now they have a home, and they have food, and they have company, and relationship, and a place, and a future. Not the one they wanted, but a future. And they can even make money. You see down here in a bit. Um, if they become rich, so you can not only be paying back 
with your work, but you can be making money on top of your paying back so that you become wealthy enough to buy you and your family out. That's, that happens too. Now, even with the slave that they may purchase, someone who is in a destitute situation who then is brought into the household, it was not race-based, it was not ruthless. If they broke a tooth or, or were harmed in an abusive way, in the book of Exodus says, they go free. Uh, they had rights uh, to rest on the Sabbath. The masters were commanded to have compassion. Again, they could, they could make money and they were freed uh, on, at Jubilee. The Israelite slaves were. The others will, could be, but they may be permanent if they don't work their way out. If a brother becomes poor besides you and sells himself to you, and those are instructions for what to do, he remains a brother, and everyone looks forward to the day when he and his family go out. So the Lord has prevented something among his people, like a feudal system where you have a few very wealthy accumulating and owning all of the property and wealth and many merely hired workers or servants. Now, sometimes lines are drawn from here to different economic and political solutions, and I won't get into all of, all of that. I do want to offer, as a kind of a parenthesis, because this isn't where the passage is going, you'll see, uh, five you know, things not to do as it concerns the poor, and one thing to do. Uh, don't romanticize the poor. Um, recognize they're both told not to defraud each other here. So we, the poor can be defrauded, and the poor can defraud. And they're humanized and honored and respected by being treated as moral agents who should not sin and defraud. Um, don't show partiality to the poor. Leviticus 19 verse 25 will instruct you not to show partiality in the court for or against the poor or, or the, the rich. There is a temptation to go easy, if you, you will, in that setting. Don't take advantage of the poor. They're vulnerable. So in your personal lives and in the course of a civic life and statecraft, the poor are not to be taken advantage of. I mean, this is the why the lottery is such a gross, gross, grotesque, terrible, godless, and wicked institution. Uh, don't get snookered by those who would use texts like these to make themselves more rich in the name of the poor. Communism decries there shall be no property. But this text says you shall lose no property. So for those who would confiscate property that is not theirs to then move it around to be where they want it on one principle or another are not operating on the operating system of, of this passage. No, this is the Lord in a specific covenantal context returning his people to the land that he very specifically gave them for a purpose that we will see he is pursuing. Don't forget the poor in your pursuit of wealth. So one thing this system did for Israel is it kept everyone a little loose on what they had. You purchase property and you've got a nice dwelling on it. Well, you won't have it forever. You can't keep going. It's not wrong to go as far as you can with your skills and your, your wealth. And even in our setup, the farther you go with integrity, the more good you do others. And so we understand that. The point is simply that we're to be mindful in, in when we're doing well of those who are not doing well around us and to see how we, may, how we may help. And that's the last thing. Not only don't forget the poor, but remember the poor. They will always be with us. And any system that seeks to end poverty uh, misunderstands how this age works. Well, moving on now, the point of all of this work we have done in this passage is to say that God is committed to liberty and freedom and to restoration. Almost like my kids know how committed I am to the liberty and freedom and restoration of the family room every evening. The pillows go, will go back where they go and everything will be reset and great. Things can devolve and degenerate and degrade for a person and a society. And the way the Lord set this up for his people was you'd have a kind of a reset every, every 50 years. And the Lord is saying in the course of those rhythms, 
I've got this, I've given you the land, and I am the boss of you, and I'm the great giver from heaven, and you will be restored. What is lost will be restored to you. If you are in bondage under debt, you will find yourself free from that debt. Two rhythms of restoration for Israel. Now, two announcements of restoration. We're going to turn to a few pages in our Bibles, and you can follow me if you like, or you can listen along. The first announcement of restoration we find in the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. These will be somewhat difficult to find, truly. Don't feel bad about just listening. Isaiah 61. Now, this is the back part of the book, which is big on soaring promise and a vision of the age to come. Of God's new creation promises when his people are holy and the sun doesn't, doesn't shine, it says in chapter 60, nor for its brightness shall the moon, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory has risen upon you. Darkness covers the earth, but the Lord will arise upon you. That's all chapter 60. And now it's chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord, he's piling on. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And what? To proclaim liberty. That's a direct quote from Leviticus 25. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And he goes goes on. Well, this is Isaiah's understanding of what the promise and the, the rhythm of this jubilee year was leading to. The God who restores and gives good news to the poor will bind up the brokenhearted and there is a day to come. And he's not talking about a 50th year here. He's talking about the new creation, the final age. The Lord will do it. Now, his readers are in exile as Isaiah is preaching. They're in exile out of the land. In chapter 26 of Leviticus, there is the promise that if they fail to keep these Sabbaths of the land, the Lord will take them out of the land so that they get their Sabbaths once for all. He will have the rest in the land even if you won't let it rest. And there's actually no evidence in the Old Testament that Israel honored every seven-year year year of rest or honored every 50th year, year of Jubilee. They may have, but there's no evidence that that actually happened. And when they end up in exile in Babylon, you actually have prophets speaking about the day when the Lord will bring Jubilee. They're saying, we're here because the land needs its rest. We wouldn't obey the Lord and trust Him in faith. And so the Lord will get done what he gets done. And he will keep his promises. Even in this case, that means exiling them from the land. This is how important this rhythm was for them. But here is the promise of good news for the poor and liberty to the, the captives and the year of the Lord's favor. Well, turn with me now to the book of Luke. This is in your New Testament. The third gospel. A second announcement. We'll read in verse 4, verse 18 in a moment, but the Lord Jesus was baptized as the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit from the Jordan, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and in the power of the Spirit, he went to Galilee and into Nazareth, and on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Verse 18, and here's what Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Now, what this is not is Jesus saying, hey, the 50th year has come. What he's saying is, hey, everything that that 50th year of rest and provision by God 
and restoration to your land and a freedom from bondage and debt, all that that was looking forward to is here in me. I am the Savior who restores the brokenhearted, the oppressed, who brings good news to the poor. I am the Savior who will mend every broken thing. He does. And this is why Christians don't believe that there is any such thing as irreconcilable differences between a husband and a wife. There is no such thing. With repentance and faith we come to God each Lord's day here precisely because we know we are broken and poor spiritually and blind and we need God. We are here because we need Him to work. The God who gives proclaims liberty through Jesus. Jesus is a great restorer. Now, John the Baptist was behind bars. What he doesn't mean is that the prisons are all open and everything gets reset and the streets are dangerous. That is not what this means. In fact, we find out what it means as we continue with the story in Luke. Jesus brings restoration. What kind? We find out by the way he brings it about through his death and his resurrection. That's how this happens. His death accomplishes something and his resurrection accomplishes something that brings about a restoration that he's talking about here. No surprise then, the Jubilee proclamation happened on the Day of Atonement when one goat went killed with your sins on him into God's presence and the other goat went with your sins on him out into the wilderness, and an argument can be made that Luke is actually subtly indicating this here himself. You have Jesus baptized, identifying with the people, which is a little weird. What did he need to be baptized for? Well, that baptism, which prefigures his own coming death, a baptism in which he is identified with the sins of his, his people, the one who will be slain for our sins, and tear the veil in the, in, in the temple. That's the goat that goes all the way in. And then, and then where does he go next? He goes into the wilderness. All the way into the wilderness. Who else went into the wilderness? Israel. But also the goat went into the wilderness with their sin. What happens exactly next? He's reading from Isaiah chapter 61. Which draws on the, day, the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. In other words, the purpose of Leviticus is not the day of atonement. To have your sins forgiven. The purpose of having your sins forgiven is so that you would know the presence of God in Him forever. And the purpose of the cross is not merely so that you would have your sins forgiven, but so that having your sins forgiven, you might be right with God and know Him forever. And this is why in Luke chapter 3, before Jesus is baptized with the Holy Spirit descends on Him, John says He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We have no idea... What is coming to us? John Piper puts it so beautifully. If we knew a fraction of the future God is making for us, if we could begin to feel all of our deepest longings will be satisfied, that every beauty of this world will be preserved and heightened, and every good affection will soar, that every proper relationship will be restored forever, that all pain and frustration and ugliness will vanish. I know ugliness in my heart, And life and home to you, it'll all vanish. But later, and Jesus will fill the world with golden light. If we could believe what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him, then our hearts would be freed from the greed and the fears that cause us to sin. So on the one hand, look to Jesus as your hope of restoration. And if he's working in you and you have his spirit, you are being changed. And there is hope for a better day for you and for your marriage and your relationships and all of that. But don't download the the completion of his plans into the moment to expect perfection now. Out of your spouse or marriage or relationship or work or relationship with your kids. This is hard work. But the Holy Spirit is empowering it and he is at work by His Spirit. 
Two pictures now. Turn with me into the book of Acts. Two pictures that lead us to two responses. How is it that we can get in on, get in on all of this? Well, in Acts chapter 3, we have, after the Holy Spirit has come and given birth to the church, we have a lame beggar that everyone knows. But Peter said in verse 6, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he leapt and he stood to walk and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who was sitting there. They were filled with wonder. Now, what was the purpose of doing this miracle right here? Verse 11, they clung to Peter and John and Everyone was astounded, so they started to preach because this audience had crucified Christ. Men of Israel, why do you wonder this? You stare at us. You're the one who crucified the Lord of glory. Killed the author of life. Now verse 19. Repent, therefore. It's your first response. Repent, therefore, if you want in on this. And turn again. And So what? So that you may be healed of your, of your lameness? No, repent, And turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. And then what? That times of, remember this word, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until what? The time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The restoring of all things and the refreshing that he's talking about is exactly what Leviticus chapter 25 was promising in miniature. We've gotten used to this. The small things that happen in Leviticus, like sacrifices and priests and two goats, are but small additions and pictures of the big thing that God is doing in Christ. And so it is with the year of Jubilee. So there will be an age that has begun now and dawned in the church, where God is restoring all things. Chapter 8 of the book of Romans has familiar words that I pray you hear the right way. We consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's been revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Adam and Eve sinned, and as a result of their sin, they were put under a curse, and so was all of creation." It was put under, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggested it, subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be what? Set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom or the liberty of the glory of the children of God. What God is starting to do and what has dawned in the church, he will complete in a whole new heavens and earth. And there won't be any need for these laws about economic destitution. No, no, no. And how do we know what this looks like in our own age? Well, a chapter before in the book of Acts, we get a second picture, and it's a family picture. As the word is proclaimed, and men and women are baptized into Christ and into his body, the church, then the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came on every soul, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as they had need. That's not a command. That's not a precise pattern. The the principle here is that here is the new covenant community, the church, where they take really, really good care of each other. And friends, it's just to commend you. You take such good care of each other. And do you know where that comes from? Your generosity? that's been shown to you and that you've shown to others and that you've witnessed, it comes from the new heart that the Spirit gives because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in fulfillment of all of the expectations that were put into the heart of Israel and into the plan of God from the book of Leviticus chapter 25. Praise God, we know what jubilee means. Let's pray.
Father, we rejoice in this picture of a man leaping and rising and walking and praising you. And we give you thanks and praise that it leads to something even better, the restoration of all things and the times of refreshing. We need refreshment. And we need restoration. And we confess that it comes in Christ, in Christ alone. And it comes through his death and his resurrection alone. We confess that there is no hope for restoration or refreshment for our souls apart from his glorious, loving sacrifice and priesthood. Make us a church that looks like this on the page, that cares for one another, that doesn't let anyone go destitute, that does not exploit one another, but loves one another as family in all circumstances. Until Christ comes, amen.